this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Haunting words from one of our fearless founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. And rather timely, especially as we stare down the barrel of a blow-the-doors-off spending bill. Don't worry. It's nothing the world's highest corporate tax rate won't fix. Never mind that profit is what made America. Profits build housing and breathe life into an economy, not to mention stocks and pension plans. What's a country to do? It's not all doom and gloom, according to one accounting firm in San Francisco, California. In fact, they've estimated that the LIHTC provisions, that is, low-income housing tax credits, contained in the $3.5 trillion spending bill would finance an additional 138,000 affordable housing units per year over the decade. That's presumably in addition to the current output of 93,000 affordable units each year. But what do I know? Let's speak with the guy that does this in his sleep. Today's guest is the legendary Michael Novogratik, managing partner of Novogratik and Company based in San Francisco, California. Mike is an intersectional expert on all things tax and housing. Mike, welcome to the show. Great, thank you, Linda. I'm pleased to be on the show. You do great work here. Thank you. Let's ease in slowly. Many viewers may not be part of the tax credit world. What are the primary programs available for multi-housing and why should market rate builders consider them? Great, thank you for that uh, question. And I agree, easing in slowly. This is definitely an arcane world, but uh, arcane worlds create opportunities. So the local housing tax credit uh, was created by the tax reform bill back in 1986. Uh, and the local housing tax credit is a subsidy that you have to apply for at a, at a state allocated agency. And it allows you to build units and rent them to low-income families at restricted rents. And you end up creating a partnership with a corporation, either directly or indirectly through a syndicator, where they invest for the tax credits. And then they uh, enable the developer to move forward with the development. And there are two brands or two types of these tax credits. One is the what's commonly referred to as the 9% credit. And that's a credit that you apply to a state agency for. The other has to do with taxes and productivity bonds. And many uh, of, your, of the developers in the world in the past have used productivity bonds to finance multifamily rental housing. Well, if you use those bonds and rent to low-income families at restricted rents, you're also entitled to tax credits as well. And that's a lower tax credit, a 4% tax credit, which has been referred to in some of your prior episodes. But those are the two foundational programs, productivity bonds with, with tax credits or the straight low-income housing tax credit. LIHTC in some form dates back to 1986. How effective is it in providing affordable product to low-income groups? So I think it's been remarkably uh, effective as evidence of the fact that it, did, it does go back to 1986. So it's the longest lasting affordable housing program that anyone is aware of in the U.S. So it's been quite successful uh, in its efforts. And it does produce, combined between the two, close to 200,000 uh, units a year uh, financing for affordable units. And I think the, the foundation of the success of the tax credit is that it is a public-private partnership. It does take a lot of the features of the private market. It puts in the hands of the private market development risk, lease-up risk, and ongoing operation risk. And the beauty for the federal government is the tax credits are only made available to the extent that the units are rented to low-income families at restricted rents. So it's a beautiful blend 
a, a very well-designed public-private partnership that's since been copied by other tax credit programs, most notably the New Markets Tax Credit. I just want to also note, though, that the, if you think about the impact that the, these incentives have had since 1986, more than 3.5 million affordable rental homes have been financed uh, through these incentives. And I would note that the National Association of Home Builders estimates that more than 8 million low-income households have been served by these rental homes. So it's been quite powerful and quite effective. One criticism of LIHTC is that public housing authorities often follow the shiny object, that is, awarding funds to glitzy product. This means higher costs per unit, fewer units built. Is there a way to reform the program in order to accommodate more people? You know, I would say that that is a common misconception about the low-income housing tax credit and uh, housing built by private activity bonds with the tax credit. And that's just because when you look at the cost of units financed by these credit allocating agencies or bond allocating agencies, and you compare them to, quote, market rate or non-subsidized, uh, non-federally subsidized developments, you're not really comparing apples to apples. When you look at credit allocating agency financed developments, you're looking at you know, a process whereby a state agency has taken a given resource and said, how do I want to use this resource? I could either A, serve it the maximum number of uh, families possible, or B, I could serve the lowest incomes possible, or I could provide the most supportive services and amenities possible. And each one of these end up affecting the overall unit count and the cost per unit. And state agencies have to basically go through and weigh these uh, and pick some over the others and try to achieve all the outcomes and get the right balance. And then I'd also note that when you're looking at costs, you have to look at yeah, there's a lot of confounding factors or variables if you were trying to compare the sort of cost per unit. A lot of state agencies, like in California, they want to subsidize family units. So there'll be more units that have three bedrooms. And obviously, a three-bedroom unit costs more than a two- or one-bedroom unit. They'll also finance more developments that support services and amenities. You know, a lot of the developments probably disproportionately have prevailing wage requirements. There's a number of other factors I could go through to that comparison. So I don't think of it as they're financing glitzy developments. I look at it as they're financing developments that are competitive with market rate units, but are serving a unique set of populations that market rate units aren't, set, aren't serving. I appreciate the clarity on that. It's often different behind the curtain. Yes, it is. <laughs> Opportunity zones are relatively new. However, some of its provisions began to sunset even before the program rules were completely in place. Also, results are mixed. How would you assess OZs? Continue or reallocate funds? Yeah, I would definitely vote to continue. Uh, and in terms of the funds, one thing that has surprised me with opportunity zones is how much attention it gets relative to the cost. The, the actual 10-year cost is roughly $2 billion over 10 years. Now, I know $2 billion is a lot of money to me as an individual, <laughs> but to the federal government, $2 billion, you just mentioned the $3.5 trillion you know, spending bill, $2 billion uh, isn't all that significant. And just by way of comparison, I'm also a big supporter of like-kind exchanges. Like-kind exchanges cost roughly $4 billion a year or $40 billion over 10 years. Opportunity zones cost $2 billion, yet it gets all this attention, uh, which is uh, really unfortunate. When you look at the impact that opportunity zones you know, can have. And you mentioned, you know, it's uh, that it, we didn't get the regs and some parts were already expiring. Well, the, to me, the real challenge is it took a while to get the regulatory guides and opportunity zones, and then you had COVID. So it definitely, you know, trying to roll out a new tax incentive amidst the challenges that we've been facing is definitely something that I would prefer not have happened. But I did want to note that 
you know, by our estimates or what we've been able to track, over $17 billion has already been raised. And that's just what we can count. We think the real number is double or triple that. And of that, $14 billion is at least partially for multifamily housing. So this has been a big source of funding for multifamily housing. We expect it to continue to be for the near term. I'm also a fan. It's good to hear the numbers. Yes, no, it's uh, it's quite powerful. I just I wish it didn't get as many of these anecdotal criticisms because there's also a lot of anecdotes of successes with like Solar Impact in LA, Opportunity Alabama, Erie, Pennsylvania. There's a number of others, uh, but you know one of the problems with Opportunity Zones is when it was enacted, they had to take out because of an arcane rule in the Senate, take out the requirement to collect data. So we're in this data void, and we haven't been able to get Congress to pass, uh, you know, th- through legislation, a requirement to collect that data. Wow. How do you do that without data? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, kind of hard to evaluate. <laughs> yeah, right. The new market's tax credit seems to, be a repli- seems to replicate the goals of opportunity zones. Which is more productive in bringing investment, including housing investment, into low-income communities? Now, that's a great question. It's one I get a lot, uh, as if it's an either-or scenario. Uh, and I always feel like saying, it's like going to a contractor and saying, what's more important, a hammer or a screwdriver? And it's like, well, tell me what I got to do, and I'll tell you which of those tools is the most important. So I, I really think that new market tax credit and opportunity zones is complementary. Uh, and as evidence of that, Senator Tim Scott, who is the, in, in many ways the father, along with Cory Booker in the Senate of opportunity zones, is also a supporter of new market tax credit. And I would just say for the listeners and viewers, the new market tax credit is a deep subsidy that targets a particular business to make that business financially viable when it wouldn't otherwise be. The Opportunity Zones Incentive basically blankets a low-income community with lower costs of equity capital. So the, the Opportunity Zone is more sort of ground up and more distributed across an entire zone, and the New Markets tax credit is more targeted to specific developments. So the New Markets tax credit has more identifiable sort of successes, and it has many. I could talk about that for a while. Uh, opportunity Zone, since it's more dispersed, it will take a while to see the community or the low-income community-wide benefits reveal themselves in the economic data. Mike, I hope we can have you back. There's just so much. No, I look forward to coming back. There are uh, a lot more to talk about. I would just note that the tax bill, if it does uh, make its way into enactment, does include a Neighbor Homes Investment uh, Act provision, which would be a new tax credit for single-family home and renovations in distressed communities. And I know that would definitely be of interest to your listeners and viewers. Absolutely. Especially single-family for rent. Yes, Mike, you are the smart, smartest guy in the room on tax credits, says everyone. Thank you for helping us sort it out. The timing is quite fortuitous. Great. Thank you for the opportunity, and I look forward to uh, coming back and keep up the good work. Thank you. The first question on any deal is, does it pencil? Today's deals and the whole of any multifamily business is complex. Creating success requires knowledge, skill, and a great accountant. And with the rumblings on Capitol Hill, it won't be simplifying anytime soon. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our show. I'm Linda Hoffman. See you on our next exciting episode of NAHB Power Hitters.